Hi, Bobby. Good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so um, could you please share with us the story behind like uh, being a personal finance advisor and so on and so forth? So my background is actually as a journalist. I spent the majority of my career working for various companies from being an intern in college at CNN and working at CNBC, then back at CNN when they had a financial network. Then I was at a show called Nightly Business Report. And then I was at Reuters. So all this time I was a journalist and I primarily covered business news, meaning economics, macroeconomic concepts. We were talking about earnings and the Fed and the economy and a lot of economic data that would come out and talking to stock market experts. And then a few years ago, I wanted to switch gears and do something that was a little bit more tangible to the everyday person. So I wrote a book called How to Be a Financial Grown-Up. And when that came out and I had a lot of opportunities tied to the book, everyone was asking me these questions, these personal finance questions. And the truth is, Hardy, I had researched the book. I had interviewed people, but I was not a personal finance expert at all. I had been a journalist, not even covering personal finance. I'd been a journalist doing macroeconomic news. So what I did before we get like uh, talk about like personal finance and all those different things, like um, could you please also share with us the story behind like starting your own podcast with Joe? Because uh, I love Joe to be honest. So uh, oh. the story behind your podcast. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Well, I'm a big fan of Joe's as well, and I met Joe at a conference several years ago. Honestly. I was really trying to get on the Stacking Benjamins show because I had this book out. So we'd become friends. And um, about a year ago, Joe reached out and said, I have a project I want to talk to you about. And he suggested he had a show he had just started called Money in the Morning. And he wanted to have a co-host. He felt it needed another voice and various other reasons. He wanted to grow the show. And so he asked me to be his partner. And so I became his partner on what was then called Money in the Morning. And the show evolved and we really wanted to include lots of different voices and we wanted to let people know that they could participate in the show because it's an interactive show. We tape it live on Facebook Live and YouTube Live and people can not only watch it being taped, but they can also participate. They can leave questions mm. and comments. So we decided we wanted to include that our friends, our audience was also part of the show. So that's why we ended up calling it Money with Friends to emphasize the audience involvement. Very cool. So um, what's like there, like a particular reason behind like doing the show? Like, um, yeah, like, do you want well, for to for me, it was an opportunity to work with Joe. <laughs> so Joe started the show. And, you know, look, when somebody you really look up to in the industry and is so good at what they do asks you to be part of a project they're working on, you have to say yes, right? Mm, makes so, sense. Yeah, <laughs> really, I wasn't looking for another project at the time. I was very busy. I still am. But Joe is so wonderful and he's so well respected in the industry mm. that I felt, how could I say no? What a great mm. adventure. I'm going to learn from the best. And Money with Friends has evolved to be a show that I am so proud of. It's growing crazy numbers. Um, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah. So uh, I've talked to quite a, a few like personal finance experts already on my show. And um, I think Quite a few of them are very boring, but um, I just love Joe. So um, <laughs> he's like high energy, very funny and smart. So, um, yeah. Well, I'll tell him you said so. <laughs> so um, 
could you please share with us, uh, looking back at your life right now, like what have been for you the worst moments and the best moments so far? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, let's start with the best. I think it's better to be positive. Um, the best moments, I think, were, of course, you know, meeting my husband and having my son. Those are, of course, highlights in your life. Um, joking, but not joking so much. We talked earlier about becoming a CFP. That was a really hard test. It was probably the hardest test I ever took. And so passing that was definitely a life highlight. Um, but I think it's also important to say the best moments of your life are the everyday moments that we don't always appreciate at the time. Um, worst moments, gosh, well, my mom passed away. So that would probably be it as I miss my mom. So, so, um, let's talk about personal finance. So, um, I think most people are asking you like certain questions probably every day and the same questions over and over and over again. So what are a few questions that people are usually asking you? And yeah, could you please speak to that? Well, it's interesting. That's a great question. What people often ask me is questions that aren't really questions. It's things that they often know the answer to, but they want mm. validation, <laughs> often to make a bad choice. So I have a friend that will come to me and say, I want to quit my job and be like you and be an entrepreneur and, you know, grow my own business. And I'll say, and she'll say, you know, can you give me the courage to do that? And I'll say, okay, well, tell me where is your income streams? What have you set up in advance? Do you have, have you trademarked a name for your business? Have you set it up as a business? Have you done it as a side hustle first? And the answer is like, well, no, because I don't have time because I'm busy with my job. And I said, well, you know, how is that going to happen? So I am often the bearer of bad news, <laughs> telling people what they don't want to hear. Or they'll say, I got a question recently. Is it okay to take money out of my retirement fund? Um, to pay for something. And, you know, I think they want you to say, sure. But yeah. I'm not going to say that. Say so. I'll say as mm. a last resort, sure. If you're going to lose your house, yes. Um, but in other cases, I'll say, like, it, in this case, it was... If you want to buy a new debt. car, it probably isn't the right choice, right? Right. However, <laughs> what I will say is if it's to buy a car to get to your job and you have no other means of employment, maybe take a loan if you're really in dire straits and you can't get a job because you don't have a car. But in this case, it was to pay off credit card debt. And, you know, the, the interest rate on paying themselves back in the retirement fund would have been less. However, you're missing opportunity costs during that time. And it's just a dangerous road to go down. So in that case, I really just suggested that they um, focus on paying off the debt through side hustles and cutting their spending like we all do. We've mm. all faced debt and it's important to kind of feel the pain sometimes. It's okay to be a little stressed out about debt because that will hopefully get you in a better mindset so you're not in that position again. But it happens. Yeah, so so people basically um, are looking for validation um, for Sometimes. their bad ideas. <laughs> not, not always, but I do find that there's a lot of that. Some people mm -hmm. have really good questions, too, that are procedural questions. I do think that a lot of this stuff, um, in terms of the facts, is often available to people. The Internet's a wonderful thing, as long as you're careful about what sources you go to. But very often, um, and even for that I, that uh, question about getting money out of your retirement fund, you can look at what the consequences are by going straight to the IRS website. Mm -hmm. um, the IRS, in, in, which is the tax agency here in the United States, they will often give you the answers to how much will it really cost, for example, to take a loan from my 401k, because people may not realize that the money they're putting back in is going to be taxable money. 
It's not a contribution. It's a repayment of a loan. So there's going to be a tax scenario. So people might not always realize that. So I think a lot of answers are there for people, but they either don't want to look or, or the real thing that I think experts are good for is bringing up questions people don't know to ask. And I think that's important too. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know and it's important. Or people might not know that there's a difference between an HSA and an FSA, which is we have health savings accounts and flexible spending accounts here. They're very different things, but people might just assume they're the same things and not ask. So mm-hmm. it's important to help people know what to ask. Yeah, and I also think um, because quite a few people are also like um, – Usually are asking me like some people were asking me in the last couple of weeks like man How should I start a business or I want to start a business and this and that and I think um, most people that want to start a business like if you are asking the answer is probably you shouldn't start a business like um, Because I think a lot of people especially like in my age when they're like in their early 20s or mid 20s or something They think it's so easy like because a lot of marketers are selling the dream of hey You can start a business and make money online and it's so easy and um, you just have to start a website and some money will come and um, I think a lot of people have like this false assumption that starting your own brand or selling a service is like very very easy i think um if you have the experience and you start a new business or you launch a new service or you launch a new product it can be very very easy but it can't be it can be it can't it can't be easy if you're like just starting out so i think a lot of people have this those false assumptions basically um yeah Aish is there? Ah, Sorry uh, about this, that. You know it. what I did? My phone was making noises, so I turned off my phone, and I forgot we were on the Wi-Fi of my phone, but we should uh, be okay now. <laughs> should I just... I, uh, I, I don't know where it... Um, like, did you get most, most of my speech, or should I, I think just... I got most of the answer. You okay, were talking yeah, about how yeah. easy it is. People think yeah. it's so easy to just start a business. Yeah, exactly. Continue. I will edit this out. Let yeah. me write the time down. Uh, one sec. Sorry about that. No problem. Shut up. I literally was shutting down the phone so it wouldn't <laughs> ring and forgot yeah. we were on the phone Wi-Fi. <laughs> no problem. Continue. So, um, yeah, look, a lot of people have come to me and asked me the same thing. So I totally relate to what you're saying. The truth is I did my business, which is, you know, the the holding company is is BRK Media. I started it. There were three years of overlap while I was still in a full-time job. And even then, it was very scary to leave. I didn't leave until I had speaking engagements and other revenue sources that were there for me. So I knew I had runway. It's very important. One of the, as you know, one of the big reasons businesses fail is lack of capital. And I've also been very open that I am in a two-income family. So I have a buffer. So when you, if you're the primary income or the sole income and you think you're just going to start a business, you need to be very careful. Mm, yeah, and I totally agree with that. And I think... Most people think that, oh, things are going to work out in two or three months or something. And I think like like most people I know, when they're like really like making making a good living, not just scraping by, 
it usually takes three to five years or even more, I would say. So I'll say I'm like, um, I started my business in like 2015 or something. And I would say like now I'm finally reaping really the big rewards after five years. So um, I think a lot of people have this false dream of, hey, um, I'm going to get rich in six months or something. So uh, <laughs> it won't happen yeah, probably. No, so. it's, it's very hard. It's, it's true. It's, it's really hard. And you forget that you're going to be the last one to get paid because if you yeah. have anybody working for you, you're not going to not pay an assistant or whomever you have because then they won't show up to work and you need them to show up. So you're going to pay them before you pay yourself. And so you may have costs going on with your business. So you not only have to be prepared to support yourself financially while this is ramping up, but also to have extra cash, to have capital, to fund the business growth. Yeah, and that's yeah. a lot. And and also, I think um, if you are worrying about money like all the time, if you are like constantly stressed out about like paying the bills, I think it isn't just worth it. It isn't worth it. Like um, I hate sleeping terrible for weeks and worrying about money. Like it's the worst feeling ever. So um, if you don't have any savings and you just want to get into entrepreneurship and start a business, I think just the headache isn't worth it, to be honest. Like um, you should have a pretty good plan before you are going into this. So. Yeah, absolutely. And the truth is many entrepreneurs, people say, well, you work for yourself. You can work only when you want. The truth is in most businesses, you work for clients. You yeah. also have deadlines for clients. Or in order to delegate things to people that you've hired, you have certain things that you need to do. Otherwise, there's a bottleneck. And you generally work many more hours. Now, what I do have, for example, as an entrepreneur now is if I choose to go at 1 p.m. to a family event, Mm -hmm. maybe a meeting at my son's school, I can do that at 1 p.m. But that work still has to get done at a different time of day. Yeah. So you might be working on a Saturday night when everybody else is enjoying themselves and knowing that the paycheck is coming in two weeks, right? Mm. When you work a corporate job, you generally know you're going to be paid every whatever, half twice a month, every two weeks. So you know that cash flow. When you work for yourself, you don't know your cash flow. Even if you've earned the money, you may have a vendor that's late to pay. You don't know or a client that's late to pay. You just don't know. So there's a yeah. lot of uncertainty when you start a business. And how, uh, for for a fact, I was just thinking about, and there are so, so many people that are telling you, oh, yeah, we are we're, we're, we're doing this deal in two weeks or three weeks. And um, you'll quickly learn that a lot of those deals don't really go through. So um, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of uncertainty, like you've mentioned. So And people um, assume that businesses are successful. I've interviewed people even on my Financial Grown-Up podcast, mm -hmm. and a year later, they're out of business. <laughs> Fuck, no, yeah. it's true. I mean, it's just businesses. One company, they sold themselves very successfully and did get money for it to a large company. And then that large company a year later couldn't make the business work and shut it down. And they were still running the company. So they had cashed out a large percentage. So they, you know, it was fine for them. They got a lot of money. They'll be fine. But they were already doing other things. But the fact is, businesses come and go. Yeah. You know, you walk down the streets of New York and there are businesses that are going out of business. Right now, we have a large stationery chain called Papyrus in the United States that has beautiful stationery. They are going out of business, every single retail location. Yeah. Yep. Look, Macy's is shutting down, which is one of our big department stores. Macy's they're is shutting, shutting down. down? No, 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 not all. But they're oh, shutting okay. down a very <laughs> large, like... no, no, but a very large number of stores. Didn't know a that. A very large number of stores. How come? Yeah. How come? How come? Retail business is tough. And uh, real estate is very expensive relative to what they can make. Their online business, I guess, 
maybe makes more sense. I don't know the details of that, but yes, you can, you'll put something in for your, for your listeners about exactly what's going on with Macy's. But the point is businesses are vulnerable, big and small. Yeah, and totally. you could have good years and then suddenly you lose two or three key clients. So you have to have one thing I'm working on and constantly trying to improve is different revenue lines. So I work with brands. I do speaking. I have another book that's going to come out. I have two podcasts. So you're constantly diversifying. Hmm. I just started a newsletter. So everything works in different ways. So right now, more income comes from the brands that I work with. But I'm hoping in the future, more will come from the podcasts. Mm, so yeah, you have to I, constantly be on your toes about where the you know if something ever dries up, what's going to be next? Totally. And I was just thinking about there's like so so many people that are making a killing, for instance, on like Facebook ads or something, and um, the ads are working for like four weeks or eight weeks, or uh, and then a competitor starts steals their copy and their advertising, and so yeah. it. I think um, yeah, like. Having a diversified like in income streams is like really important and um, yeah. So um, before I talk about your upcoming book, um, Bobby, could you please share with us like what have been for you um, the biggest epiphanies or learnings on entrepreneurship and personal finance? So um, yeah, a very big question, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> Well, I think it's important, as we talked about, to really have a plan, but also to be prepared to pivot. So if you don't have a plan, you don't have a hope. Absolutely. You have to have a plan. And I did spend three years in my full-time job. And you should appreciate those full-time jobs, if you have one, as a really good launching pad for whatever your next venture is. And I got some great advice before I left about three, you know, when I started the idea that I was going to leave and I was going to prepare for this. I went around and talked to a bunch of people that were mentors to me. And one person said to me, use everything you can at Reuters. In other words, if they offer free training for anything, take the free training, learn how to do every job. So for example, I learned how to edit, even though it wasn't my job necessarily to edit. It was at some times in my career, but I made sure that I understood how to use Avid, how to use mm -hmm. Final Cut. I learned you, we talked about that my setup while we've had some quirks with Skype, is relatively sophisticated. Part of it is that I did learn some audio when I was at Reuters. So constantly ask questions about the people that are doing jobs that you don't do. Learn to do every job that you can because that might be a skill set that you as an entrepreneur have to do that because you, you can't afford to hire somebody to do it right now. Yeah. You may not have the money or it may make more sense for you to just do it. So for example, I make all the graphics for the podcasts. Cool. Now we have an assistant that continues them, but I designed the original one. So I hope you like them. <laughs> but I did the initial design. Those are skills that I learned in advance mm -hmm. before I left my corporate job. So it's really important to use every resource that you can while you're there and to appreciate it. And also make sure not only not to burn bridges, but to build bridges when you leave. I left on mm -hmm. very good terms with the management. I told them well in advance that I was thinking of leaving. I told them why. Um, I always speak kindly of them. There's no reason I wouldn't, but I always am, you know, leave graciously. Don't say, oh, I'm out of here. Really <laughs> think about the fact because those people, first of all, companies are, are, I know people got in trouble for saying this, but companies are made up of people. And those are people that are assets to you in the future. In fact, many entrepreneurs, their first client is often the company yeah. they just left. So stand really good terms, be open don't take any company data or anything. Don't do anything you're not supposed to do. Leave graciously and really stay in touch with those people. They can be a tremendous mm. resource to you. 
And I would also like to add that um, if you think, for instance, you are like now in a corporate job or working like nine to five or having a nine to five job, like um, if you think that you will go like all in when you quit your job, I think this is like nonsense. If you aren't like working on your side hustle like right now, like it won't happen in a year or when you quit your job. Like I think a, a lot of people think that they have this big surge of motivation when they quit their job. But um, I see so many people, it, it just doesn't happen in my opinion. So um, I think if you're like working a nine to five job, like building a side hustle is like really hard. I totally get it. We are all exhausted. We have to go to the gym. We have our families or our girlfriend and this and that but um i think um you have to make the time like if you don't make the time like now like you won't make it like in six months or something so um yeah not only that i find that if i'm being honest i was in many ways more productive when i had the job i <laughs> yeah. had less to do but i did write my book while i had this full-time job and because i was so boxed in and i literally knew that i had this window of time between when i dropped my son off and i had to be at work and i could go for an hour or two to a coffee shop and mm. that was my only time available to work yeah. boy was i focused versus now i'm having a great day talking to you and procrastinating <laughs> doing all kinds of things that i should be doing for my for my business and i'd rather be here with you but it's the day is just for me to schedule it's just open time, and I think it's much more difficult to have that structure. I have some structure in this business because I have business partners and I have clients, so I have a lot of calls and things that do end up forming bookends on my day. But mm. many entrepreneurs starting out, if they just sit there, nothing's going to happen. Yeah, They could this. just chill the whole day, and yeah. it could be gone. And if you think about the productivity levels in, you know, what really when you're an entrepreneur, you're not working an eight-hour day. You're working at least 12 to 16 hours. If you blow off 12 to 16 hours that you could be working, that is tragic. Mm. So it's really important to have a way to structure your day. Even if you go through your calendar and write down at 9 to 9.30, I'm going to make calls for prospects. At, you know, 9.30 to 10, I'm going to work on my website. Really structure your days because when you first start, it can be great very point. difficult. Great I even, point. hey, I work <laughs> from home sometimes because I have to do my recordings with Joe Salcihai on Money with Friends here yeah. in the kitchen. But when I'm not recording, I have a workspace. I go to I go to a place. That's my workspace. So that, um, you know, for example, my husband came home when we were setting up. This way, if I'm at the workspace, I'm working. Mm. And I'm in the mindset that I am at work. And I know yeah. that I have from this time to this time to work that day. And that's it. And I'm focused. Yeah, and I, I was just thinking about when I quit my job and um, I started my first business, like I was procrastinating like 80% of the time playing video games. So um, oh. <laughs> you, everyone who's listening to this really needs a plan. So um, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yes. <laughs> so um, You need to get a desk somewhere where there's no distractions. And yeah. by the way, it doesn't have to cost money. You can go to the library. Yeah. Good Go point. sit at the library. Good point. That's Good free. Point. Yeah. And, so, and, you know, you can be there for a very long time. You don't have to worry about going to a coffee shop. <laughs> I don't know uh, why more people don't work out of the library. Some people do. <laughs> so um, I think everyone who is listening to this would love to hear Bobby. Um, could you please tell us a bit about your upcoming book? So uh, share with us the story behind like writing the book and what the book is about and so on and so forth. So. 
So the book um, feeds off my first book was How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, and that was aimed at people that felt they weren't fully grown up when it came to money. Generally, that would be people in their 20s, but truthfully, Hardy, it was also people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond because there's always things that you don't know. So it's a lot of basics of how to, you know, what do you need to do to basically be an adult in terms of your finances. And what I realized in my time, and I'll share a personal story in a moment, is that the parents of these younger people often weren't participating. They just kind of assumed that kids knew what to do when they often didn't, or the parents didn't know themselves and therefore weren't teaching the kids. And we can talk a lot about schools should teach the kids, and that's all good. There's nothing bad about that. But at the end of the day, you're a family ecosystem. And if your children don't know what they're doing with their money and they don't make the best decisions within the choices that they have, because we don't all have infinite choices. That's a myth in the U.S. Some people do have limited choices, and that stinks, but it is what it is. We want to make the best decisions from where we are. If you don't help your children, there are statistics that show the majority of parents will take money out of their retirement funds to help their children. And I'd like to say intellectually I wouldn't, but I don't know. If my child was in trouble, I think I would do anything for them, right? So we want to prevent this. We want to prevent the Gen Xers and baby boomers who are retiring from having their retirements hurt by the fact that the younger generation may not be fully informed on what they need to be doing. So the idea of this book, it's called Raising Financial Grownups. And the idea is that Gen Xers like myself and baby boomers who are moving into the retirement years, educate our children. We teach them, for example, I have a whole chapter on how to read a paycheck. Now you might think that's obvious. Well, I don't know if you've seen a paycheck in the United States. It is bananas. There's all kinds of acronyms. And a lot of people won't know what they stand for. And it's important that you understand where your money's going because that might influence the decisions you make. I remember my stepdaughter who influenced a lot of this book. She's 23 now. And she was shocked when she got her first paycheck at how much money came out. She was also shocked when she just recently went on her own health care, how much things actually cost. Suddenly she understood what all these politicians were talking about. <laughs> Makes sense. So um, yeah, so you want to be ready to have the answers when your kids come to you and you want to go to them if they're not so that they don't get in trouble because from very practical selfish means you're going to bail them out if they get in trouble. So let's work together and stop the kids from making mistakes. Make sure they're educated so that you can enjoy your retirement and feel secure that your kids are going to be okay. So um the kids on my podcast are all in their 20s. So what would you Ooh. tell them? <laughs> Educate yourself. There's tremendous resources. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think listening to podcasts is a great way to go. Money with Friends is a good resource. Financial Grown Up, which is my podcast. We do a lot of personal money stories from high achievers. They share things that had an impact on their life that are money related. And then they kind of say, a lesson from it, something relatable to other people. They also do fun everyday money tips. So I think that's a good resource too. Stacking Benjamins, of course, is a wonderful resource. We love that show. I love so the name of the show, by great. the way. <laughs> podcasts yeah. are great. Um, and reading. And again, the internet is a wonderful resource. Just there's so much that can come just from, you know, if you read the paper, whatever paper resonates with you, the Wall Street mm. Journal is a great go-to paper. And if you read what's going on there, for example, a week ago, you would have read about the SECURE Act which is an acronym for something, I forget what, but basically there were a lot of changes in how uh, retirement plans work, for example, and the taxes involved. So if you read the paper, you're gonna learn 
about something very relevant that matters a lot because it may shape the decisions that you make. And um, do you have like a, a framework or a blueprint how on how you are thinking about like uh, saving and investing and personal finance and all those different things? Like, do you have a framework that um, you could talk about right now? Well, I think it's important, and I love that you asked it this way, to understand the difference between saving and investment. And this is something a lot of people confuse. So, for example, my stepdaughter came to me very proud, as she should have been, that she had put aside the right amount of money in her 401k to make sure she got the maximum match from her new employer. That's great. But so that's savings. What she didn't know, and this is why this book is going to be so important, is that that's just the bucket. So savings is one part and then investing is the next part. So from that, you put it into the 401k. That's just the vehicle. You then have to put it into an investment, for example, into a mutual fund. So it's really important to understand the difference in that. I think it's important to make sure that you're also investing, not just saving. And no one ever complained that they had invested or saved too much. That's what I would say. More is always more. And, and, and do you have like percentages that you are usually like advising? Okay. I stay away from that because I think every situation is unique. And as a certified financial planner, I think it's important that we talk to individuals, not to generalizations. I think generalizations, I mean, look, you can say you should have an emergency fund that's three to six months because that's a standard amount. And it should be longer on the longer end if you're single, on the shorter end it can be if you're um, married. But, you know, realistically, that may not be something a lot of people can do. So I would say if you can't have that, then have at least, let's say, enough to get you through a couple paychecks and then have maybe access to a, um, a loan of some sort. What was I going to say? A HELOC, a home equity loan. Mm -hmm. And that way you have, you can borrow money at a lower rate if you really need to, you can figure out a plan. So I think it's important most of all to be realistic and understand that people can't always just magically have these formulas. They may have a few years where they're paying off student debt. And but so but that's all the girls are handling out those. Yeah. What? But but all the gurus are handling out those formulas on the internet. So but I am not. I don't. <laughs> I'm right. just so kidding. listen to them. I'm not going to do that. I don't. I don't believe kidding. in that. I think that everyone should do what's right for them. <laughs> you know, look, you can be in a high cost city like New York City, where you know realistically you can say your housing should be 25, but maybe it's going to have to be a lot more mm. to live in a safe neighborhood or to live somewhere where you can take public transportation and therefore not have to own a car and have that cost. There's so many variables that I don't like to give fixed percentages. Yeah, right? I see. And and there's no such thing as saving too much. There's no such thing as investing too much. That's what I would say. Yeah, great advice because I also think you can see it in like every industry. For instance, I was just thinking about the fitness industry where like all the fitness coaches are handling out like diet templates to people where it just doesn't make sense because everyone is different. And I think the same goes for the finance industry. So I think your advice is great. Right. I mean, more is generally more. And so no one complained of having too much money in retirement. I would say so. So um, what are a few things on all the different things that we've talked about so far, like personal finance, saving, investing, that you tend to not talk about usually, but you would love to talk about? So, um, yeah. I think that it's important to be understanding and sensitive to where friends are financially. Very often we'll make dinner reservations and we don't really think is that in everyone's budget. So sometimes I will chime in and just say, hey, let's place a, let's pick a place that's budget friendly. 
you know, because no one ever said like the same thing I just said before. No one ever said, oh, dinner was too inexpensive. Right. You can go somewhere nice. But I think that, you know, sometimes people get invited to dinners. Maybe it's a group dinner for someone's birthday. It doesn't have to be at the fanciest place because sometimes that puts people in a really tough position. So I think it's really important not to just to be sensitive to friends that not everyone's doing the same, or even if they're making as much as you, they might have a pile of debt they're paying down. They may want to save more than you want to save. They may be responsible for an older relative and paying those bills. I have several friends that are supporting their parents already, even though they're in their forties, they're supporting their parents. So you don't know what you don't know. Don't assume people can afford everything. Just, you know, pick, pick reasonably priced restaurants or even say to the side quietly, if it's a group conversation, you know, what's your budget? Is this place in your, whatever it is, mm-hmm. or you can even just take it yourself and just be like, I'm on a budget. Let's pick some place reasonable. Yeah. It's fine. You know, be cool. It's about being with your friends. I even frankly already before going to meals, I often just say, let's go for a walk in the park, central park. When I wanted to see one of my girlfriends, we'll just walk and we're getting exercise and we're not eating. So it's a good diet thing. Right. And mm-hmm. we're not spending money. And it's great. Yeah. We're spending time with each other, which is yeah. really nice. So I would just, I guess that's the big topic is, is being sensitive to your friends. Very good. Great advice. And, um, because, um, like I'm in the marketing space and I always tend to say like marketing is just being considerate. Like, um, yeah. Like if you know this person, like ha- is struggling with money or you'd think it might be expensive for them, then just, Go ahead and pay the bills or go to, I don't know, eat pizza or something. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, could you please um, share with us, like, at the end, I always ask five questions to every mm-hmm. guest. But what would you tell our listeners at this point in our conversation? Like, what would be your best advice on personal finance and um, saving and all those different things that we've talked about today? I think wherever you are, try to not feel bad. We all always feel a little bit inadequate. We all feel like our friends are doing better or we should be doing better. But the truth is, you are where you are. Everyone I've ever met, I think without exception is, a, you know, doing their best. So don't be frustrated, just own it. You know, you may be in a phase of life where you have debt. You may be in a phase of life where you have a lot of money. Um, wherever you are, be happy. Don't let it overshadow living your life. I had a real moment a few years ago where I did not want to go on a trip to Iceland, which could have been very expensive. And my sister got very mad at me. She said, well, you know, I understand cash flow and this and that, but you have enough money in savings that this is not going to hurt your life at all. Like you could afford it. You might have to take X dollars out of savings to do this trip. But like, that's what savings is for. I mean, you know, we're not talking about jeopardizing retirement. And that was really hard for me. And that trip, my son, who's now 12, I think he was 10 at the time. Someone asked him what was, you know, the best thing you ever did. And it was that trip to Iceland. And we only went for four days because Iceland is really expensive. But the fact that we went on this big splurge trip, I think it's really important to live your life and be responsible financially. Absolutely. But I love the answer. Warren Buffett gave this answer to a child who talked about how do you manage delayed gratification? And he talked about the fact that you should not, and this is another child example, so apologies, but I hope everyone can relate to this. You shouldn't say to your child or decide, we're not going to go to, say, Disneyland until we've got everything saved up to go on the trip of our dreams for seven days and stay at the best place and have a really good time. You know, just stop and just, you know, stay at the cheaper hotel, go for a few less days, maybe, you know, bring some 
power bars. We actually did that in Iceland one day because the only option to eat was a crazy, it was like some meal was like $600. It was some crazy number for like lunch for three of us. I was like in the woods and some gourmet setup. I said, forget that. We brought like a little, um, a bag of like uh, power bars and we sat at a picnic table in the park and we ate the power bars. I mean, it's fine. We went to Iceland. But some of the trip was very nice. Don't get me wrong. But we didn't, you know, you don't have to go to the top restaurant at Disney. Go to Disney. Go for less time. Stay in a less fancy hotel and go at the age when you your children should go because <laughs> they're going to grow up. Right. And you don't know. Look, my mom passed away. I mentioned earlier in the show she was 62. What trips did she not, you know, she went on a lot of trips as it happens, but you don't know what your life will hold. Look at Kobe Bryant, you know, we don't know. So don't let money be responsible. Absolutely. But don't not do things. Find a way to do them now to live your life Hmm. and don't let money hold you prisoner. Very powerful. Um, where can people I hope con- that's not interpreted as being irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> so um, where can people connect with you on the social webs and work with you and so on and so forth? Um, on Instagram, I am at BobbyRebel1, the number one, and that's B-O-B-B-I-R-E-B-E-L-L-1. Mm-hmm. And on Twitter, just BobbyRebel. And my website is BobbyRebel.com. And you can also get to Money with Friends by going to moneywithfriendspodcast.com. And you can go to our Instagram and Twitter handles at moneyfriendspod. Got it. So um, the first out of the five question is, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? Okay, so I had to come up with this very quickly because I did not see your note until just before we came on. So I might have different answers for all of these at another time. But at this moment, this is what I came up with. The first one is Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within. And the reason is that it was while listening to that that I decided to start my business because he talks about just deciding to do it. And he tells his own story of how he started from much more humble means than I did without nearly the resources that I had. And I just realized that I had to do it. And so I've always been inspired by Tony Robbins. And in fact, when I was writing How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, I had a list, of a wish list of people that I wanted to be able to quote in the book. And Tony was at the top of it. And I thought there was no way. I had no connections to him at the time. And I just, it was just this, visualization. Like if I could have anybody be in the book, it would be Tony Robbins. And through a variety of circumstances, I did end up meeting Tony Robbins within a year. Wait, it gets better. It gets better. Not only is he in the book, but he did, he wrote the foreword. Ah, how did you make that happen? That's a longer story. (laughs) Yeah. I can can be persuasive, but uh, he's, he's wonderful. And you're really uh, crazy. Didn't very know that. that he wrote the forward to the book and he's a lovely gentleman and I've learned so much from him. Highly recommend going to one of his conferences. I went to one. Um, just amazing. He's a, an amazing inspiration. I love all of his books, but that one is the one that had the greatest meaning. The second book is The Feminist Fight Club mm-hmm. by Jessica Bennett. Are you familiar with that book? No, but I, I love uh, Fight Clubs, the original book, and the movie as well. So <laughs> This is a little bit different, but it's basically about how, really any gender, but how women can stand up for themselves in the workplace. And one lesson that she tells is a story about um, somebody named Josh. And Josh is just a, 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 it's not his real name, but it's an average, you know, Caucasian male in his early 30s, good looking, charming, whatever. And you like him. He's a good guy, not a bad person in any way. 
But when you think about what is going on at work and you want to do something that you're kind of squeamish about, think about, she says, WWJD, what would Josh do? And so, for example, when I was writing the book, I had been working 12-hour days at my employer. But I was in the union, and the union only said we had to work an eight-hour day with a one-hour lunch. And so I thought about that. What would Josh do? Would Josh go and just, you know, bury his head in the sand and resent the fact that they're working 12 hours? Would Josh go to a supervisor and sort of apologize and say, can I work fewer hours? Or would Josh just work the seven hours, right? And I decided to try that. And I, and I was the supervisor of my little unit. So I reported to somebody, but they weren't day-to-day management. So I did have the autonomy of doing that. And instead of, and what I did is I just decided, look, I have people under me. I had always been reluctant to let go of control, but I let my deputy handle the morning phone calls with London. And so I came in later, gave me a lot more time to work on my book. And I, I didn't not tell people, I said, I'll be in at 1030 in the morning. Right. And no one really pushed back. They said, okay. And I was amazed how simple it was. So when you go to a dentist appointment, you don't apologize. You don't say, okay, I'm going to work, you know, an extra four hours because I'm going to be gone for one hour and I'm so sorry and I'll be out. You just leave. You have your cell phone on, you're reachable. Nobody knows where you are, but it's fine. I mean, don't miss meetings. But instead of uh, what I would have done before reading this book is apologize and say, Mm. you know, two weeks from now, I'm going to have to leave during lunch and I won't be at my desk for 45 minutes and I'm so sorry and I'll stay late that night. No, just put it on the calendar. You know, you could just say out of office for one hour. They don't need to know where you're going. And the truth is nobody really cares as long as the work gets done Mm -hmm. and you don't miss an important meeting, right? So it's the whole, what would Josh do? What would the average person that's just not over obsessing, whatever, it's a stereotype, but it works. (laughs) So, and the third book, I'm going to actually say my own book, how to be a financial grown up because, <laughs> because it's so much of accomplishment. Like, I just think that it's so hard to write a book and writing my second book now is so much harder. And so I appreciate that book so much more now. Yeah. I, I think that the foreword uh, by Tony Robbins is amazing. So, <laughs> so, um, the second question is, uh, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? So this, again, was very hard because I just got the question right before we went on. So this is what I wrote. Number one, I wrote Little Women, which I just saw. That's out. I think it won some Oscars. And I love that because they adapted it in a way that was really relatable. I love a speech that the character of Amy gives where she talks about the fact that she has to marry for money because she has no other way to support herself as a woman at that time. And that really resonated. Like, What's wow. the movie about? It's about four sisters and how they grow up, their teenage to adult years, and the different things that happen to them and the different paths that they choose. And what this character Amy talks about is that, you know, the littlest one, I don't want to get into, I don't want to spoil what happens, but that's, you know, um, but then one of them, you know, wants to be a writer and she's off, you know, she's not going to marry. She's not, and she's not going to make much money for a while, if ever. And then another one marries uh, a school teacher and they're very poor. They're struggling. And so, and the mother is, uh, the, the point is who's going to support the next generation of the family. That's really the struggle. So they're, the mom's effectively a single mom. So who's going to support this family going forward? And she is effectively has to become a breadwinner via marrying somebody for money. So I thought it said a lot about the choices that women have these days, which is great. It also really, you know, we often vilify women who marry for money and we forget the fact that that was the only option for so long. 
And when the character comes out and explains it, because she's being criticized, people are saying, well, you only are marrying him for his money. And she says, well, but what would you expect me to do? Who's going to support my family? No one's going to pay me to do a job. It really, I don't know. What do you think, Hardy? Uh, yeah, I think, um, why should date a broke guy? It doesn't make sense. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, now we can earn our own money. That's the short answer. <laughs> time, you couldn't. And I like the fact that she stood up for herself and said, hey, you haven't given me other options. I have no other way to support my family. Yeah. So I thought that was really wonderful script writing and it, it really resonated. Um, anyway. Okay. So my second one is Legally Blonde, which stars Reese, Reese Witherspoon. And the reason is that she is underestimated. And I think it's really important that we not judge people at face value and we not underestimate people. And I love that that character proves that and triumphs in the end. So, and then the third one was, um, I had a couple ideas. Um, I would say just genuinely a movie that I loved is, um, you've got mail because it, it often, it, you know, um, oh no, I'm sorry. I meant to say a different movie. I meant to say, I was thinking of Meg Ryan. I meant to say when Harry and Sally got married, got when Harry, is that what it is? When Harry and Sally, when Harry met Sally, that's what I would say. When Harry met Sally, because sometimes the most important things in our life are right under our nose. And we don't realize it. And it takes us a long time to see what's important and to see the people in our life that we should really appreciate. And that movie really tells that story of it being there all along, what makes us happy. And we don't always see that. We're always looking when it's right there. So, um, the I third hope did okay. that was very spur of the moment. Hardy. You <laughs> so, um, the third question is, uh, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Okay. The most useful product that I have bought in recent memory has been an air purifier in my bedroom because it helps my husband not snore at night. Therefore we sleep better and therefore we function better. How's that? <laughs> Great. He really enjoys it, and I like him to be happy. He likes it. It's so, a really um, fancy one. It's from Dyson. <laughs> um, the fourth question is, um, what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal oh, about no. their relationships, um, their past. Um, so speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today. Wait, what was the question again? Most important realizations you've had in the last oh, couple of years. I think that you can course correct. So you make a lot of you know decisions financially in the moment. And we worry so much, for example, when it comes to retirement. And I got some advice recently from somebody I interviewed that, of course, like I said earlier, you should always have, there's no one's ever going to say, I don't have enough money for retirement. But the truth is, That if, for example, the stock market goes down and you're living off dividends, you don't get as many dividends as you had hoped, as much money from dividends as you hoped. So spend less money. Maybe don't maybe go on a less fancy version of the trip you're going to go on. I mean, you can adjust, adjust your life. And that goes for business, too. So I have two podcasts. I love them both. But right now, so first financial grown up was bigger. Now money with friends is bigger. So you adjust. You just have to adjust to life and be flexible, be ready to pivot with your business, with your relationships, if something's not working out. Um, I had a brief di brief marriage and divorce when I was very young. And, you know, you just bounce back, be resilient. I met, you know, my husband, who's great. We've been together for 
14, we met in 2005, so 15 years now. So life goes on, you know, don't get so upset if you hit a bump in the road, pivot, course correct, whatever word you want to use, it's going to be okay. So uh, the last question for the day is, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I wish I had taken a year off before starting to work for money. I think that I was very concerned to get a job right out of college. And I regret not taking a year to just do something. Because once you start your job, very often it just keeps going in some yeah. form. I think your generation is a little better at saying, okay, I'm going to take a sabbatical from work for a year. I'm going to hit pause briefly. Too long. Generally, Mo that's most often... of them, I would say. Like... Okay. But, you know, <laughs> it just depends what you're doing. Certainly, if you have children, it's not as easy. But I wish that I had sort of taken that year off and, and taken some time instead of just going right into looking for a job so intensely because you have forever to work, but you don't have forever to be alone with no responsibilities for anyone but yourself because before you know it, you might meet a spouse, a partner in life, or have children, or your parents might need you to take care of them. So you may have responsibilities beyond yourself, but usually when you're 20, you're only responsible for yourself. So be a little selfish. Take a year off. It'll be okay. Bowie, thank you so much for the episode and thank you so much for your time. Have a good day. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out.